This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 15, Episode 8, Is a Recession Inevitable? Talking with Jeff Krumpelman, Chief Investment Strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Joining us today from his office in Cincinnati, Ohio, is Jeff Krumpelman of Mariner Wealth Advisors. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. It's great to be here. Glad to be with you today. My pleasure. Well, Jeff, could you take a few moments and tell us about Mariner Wealth Advisors, your investment style, your target market, as well as give us a little bit about your own background? For sure, Jim. So Mariner Wealth Advisors is a U.S.-focused wealth management firm. We're based in, in Kansas City. I actually reside and am based in Cincinnati, Ohio. We are one of the offices that Mariner has purchased over the years, and we built a a wealth management firm that includes now 70 offices throughout the country. So we're definitely national in scope. We have 70 billion uh, assets under management, Mm. and in terms of our style, I, I think I would tell you that, you know, we try and provide both wealth management. So that's retirement planning, estate planning, talking to people about Medicare, Social Security, 529s, all the things that you can think about mm-hmm. uh, in that regard, charitable giving, tax planning, all of those services. But with regard to style of investment management, I would, I would just say that it's a diversified style. We have both internally managed strategies that I get involved in. Uh, so my specialization is in stock land or equity management. We mm-hmm. have a number of internal strategies uh, that I help really commandeer, ranging from conservative to moderate to uh, very aggressive Several of those strategies have a a dividend growth orientation, so very high quality. But we also have um, a a comprehensive investment platform that includes external stock managers and can provide, if you will, best of breed third-party managers as part of the uh, investment allocation that our clients embrace. And then I work with colleagues On the bond side that we have at Mariner, we have a fixed income group and can manage individual bond portfolios. We certainly are involved in all the alternative area, so have private equity offerings, uh, both our own and both those that we can advise that are third-party managed. And so it's a very diversified investment platform. And it can be customized. It, it depends upon whatever our clients' needs are. We will build portfolios. We have the capability to do that. And I think what sets us apart, quite frankly, relative to other uh, investment management or wealth planning firms is the fact that we do have this separation of duty. I think many of our peers try and be all things to, to all people and have an individual, a guy or a gal, that is really – responsible for wealth planning and you know estate planning and, and all the personal financial planning knowledge, as well as being the investment manager 
and a relationship manager. And I, I think that that's really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So we separate. My, my focus and specialization is on the investment side. And then I have colleagues that are uh, certified financial planners or CPAs or both that specialize on the wealth planning segment of it. So I think that we can bring those two worlds together, collaborate, and provide a very comprehensive uh, solution. We have a mix of high net worth individuals. That's really our focus at Mariner. Mm -hmm. But we also work with institutions um, and can manage, you know, foundations, uh, pension plans and those kinds of things as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the focus really is on on high net worth. I will add, and it's the final thing I'll say, Barron's, uh, with regard to Mariner, um, Barron's has ranked us in the top five of registered investment advisors for a number of years, and that's just based upon client retention, your credentials, um, investment performance, of course, is part of that. You get that, that influences client retention. And so we've been very proud of that, that we're considered mm-hmm. one of the, the best by Barron's, a very reputable organization, one of the best uh, registered investment advisory firms in the country. With regard to Jeff Crumpleman, <laughs> so my, my title is Chief Investment Strategist uh-huh. and Head of Equities. So my role there is to have an opinion uh, for the world and the marketplace and our clients on equity world. You know, what what do large cap stocks in the U.S. look like? What's our outlook for large cap, small cap, international? I'm part of the asset allocation team that will make recommendations on uh, how much in a diversified portfolio should be dedicated to those different equity asset classes. Mm -hmm. I work with the media. You know, I just recently was on CNBC and Bloomberg and, and I write investment strategy commentary. And then I, I um, oversee this group of nine individuals at Mariner on the equity side that run our individual equity strategies, where we have diversified portfolios that own individual stocks that we, we manage for our clients. And again, that ranges from very conservative, that focus on preserving capital in times like this, when times are weak, uh, to the very aggressive, where you get a little more greedy and you want more upside. Um, just a, a very challenging time, and uh, I'm I'm proud to be part of this group. That you know, knock on wood, this year we're actually um, outperforming the indices and in our internal strategies at this point. And we're we're it's difficult to jump up and down when you're going down less than <laughs> yes. the market, uh-huh. but we are. We so. are. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Jeff. So that's a good thing. That's that's very impressive, both the the firm's history and background and your personal background. Let's talk about the stock market. We seem over the last three to four months to see mixed signals coming out of the stock market that a recession may be on the horizon. And certainly May inflation numbers at more than 8% are top of mind for most investors and consumers today. What's your outlook for the U.S. economy and the stock market at this point? And I wish we had five hours, but I, <laughs> I, know, I, I know we don't. Um, so I'll try and condense our thoughts. And I would say at a, a very high level, let's talk about maybe the economy first. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about the market because they are two separate animals completely. There certainly is correlation, but one can be uh, weak 
while the other is strong and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I would say as, as a summary, we see the economy slowing, mm -hmm. not uh, necessarily moving to recession, but it is decelerating and growth is weaker. And we expect to continue to be going forward through the end of this year and into next year. Our outlook on stocks, on the other hand, is that we're close to a bottom mm -hmm. and that there is far more upside at these levels than downside. And I would also add to that that um, I, I want to come back to this. Many times the market, in fact, almost half the time, if you look at history, the stock market is positive and provides nice returns in the midst of recession. Mm -hmm. Generally, the weakness occurs in advance of the recession, six to 12 months in advance of the recession. If, if you uh, exclude the most serious recessions or depressions from the historical data, let's just X out 1929. This is not 1929. We don't have 10% unemployment. Mm -hmm. This is not uh, 2000 when uh, you, you had the dot-coms that didn't even have revenues uh, with multi-billion dollar market caps. It's, it's not that time. And it's not 2007 or 2008 when the market was down over 50% from peak to trough and you had a total implosion in housing. And, you know, we were one tarp legislation plan away, perhaps from bread lines in the United States. I mean, that was just a horrible time. In fact, it's referred to as a great recession. Mm -hmm. It's not those that type of environment. <laughs> we, we may be moving to a mild recession, but the stock market can do quite handsomely in a mild recessionary environment. And we wouldn't be surprised to, to see a rally, despite the fact Mm -hmm. that we, we might move in a recession. Well, the, um, the S&P, for instance, today was up 2.6%. I think the Dow was up 2.3%. And pretty much we've been in the green for most of this week, both for the Dow and the S&P. So to your point, do you think we have hit the bottom and we're cautiously beginning an uptick? Or is this what they call the dead cat bounce? I think that it, it could be just... A, uh, a bounce and a rally as part of the churn toward the bottom, I think we're very close. If we're not at the bottom, and it's really difficult to call the bottom, as you know, mm -hmm. um, there's downside to 3,500 as far as we're concerned. If people really want to get crabby, and I think that's what it is. I don't think that this swoon is based upon the real data because I think the real data is way better than uh, investors realize. I think the reason that investors are crabby and why PE multiples have declined and the market's off going into this week, you know, 23%, it was down somewhere around 23%. I think it's just because people are afraid that inflation is out of control and the Fed is going to hike far higher than they would like and that they anticipated only months ago. And we don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. We don't feel like the Fed is going to have to hike to those extreme levels. And we do think inflation is calming. It's not calming as fast as people want, but we think there are signs of that. And the reason I think the market rallied this week is that we're back in that zone of bad news is good news. We need for the economy to soften because that will soften inflation. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And ironically, that is what is going to allow then multiples to expand and for earnings to be sustained at adequate levels. And I think that we're, we're uh, actually on that path as we speak. So that's, that's a, a diatribe in answering your question. <laughs> we are close to the bottom, mm -hmm. and we think that the upside is as high as 5,000 on the S&P 500 in the next 12 to 15 months because unemployment is still extremely low. Mm -hmm. Earnings are still positive. The consumer is still in decent shape. And we think inflation is calming and the Fed is not going to have to hike as much. And finally, this week, maybe it's a temporary rally. We'll have a little more churn before we really rip to the upside. But I think people saw that, wow, 6% mortgage rates are slowing the housing market. They're starting to slow the retail sector just a little bit. Manufacturing is calming a little bit. And all that is going to give you know, a little bit of cold water to the inflation scare mm -hmm. and give the Fed some cover, maybe not to hike as much as people fear. Let's just come back to inflation for a minute, because now a year ago when inflation began to appear on the horizon, the administration was talking about it being transitory. However, here we are one year later, and of course we do have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where you still have supply chain uncertainty, which is impacting sectors of the economy. But it hasn't been transitory. In fact, it seems to have been on a steady increase. Was the Fed believing its own propaganda, if you will, and saying it was transitory rather than, did they take their eye off the ball, in other words, at the earliest stage of this, uh, this wave of inflation? Or not? I don't think they did. I, I, I actually think that people are, are a little, uh, they scrutinize the Fed a bit too much. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there were external factors. Um, I think Ben Bernanke actually uh, replies to these these types of questions better than anyone. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I see my role. I have a lot of, of uh, peers in the industry that seem uh, to want to criticize the Fed. I don't think that's our role. I think our role is to see what the Fed's doing and try and understand what it means for the market mm -hmm. and, and not judge what they should or shouldn't do. But since I'm asked that, I would tell you that if, in the words of Ben Bernanke, hindsight's twenty twenty. And would you say, Jeff or Ben, that the Fed should have hiked in the fall of last year knowing what you know now? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. But that assumes that you have the foresight of the Ukraine-Russian war, mm -hmm. that you have the foresight that no one wants to come back to work. And I think that that's as critical as the Ukraine-Russian war. That, And I find it shocking, quite frankly, that folks are slow to want to come into the workforce. What the Fed saw and what I would have seen as a Fed governor is that we have 12 million open jobs, but we only have 6 million people to fill them. Mm-hmm. And you would think that when the stimulus checks stopped going out, when we started spending the $2 trillion in excess bank deposits we had from those programs, mm -hmm. when pandemic went to endemic 
or at least it felt that way when we were reopening, that people would come back to work and you wouldn't have this tight labor market where you have as much wage pressure as we have. And then I also think that there have been spells in China and in other parts of the world where they've shut down Shanghai and Beijing and mm-hmm. other you know major country or ma- major cities that the, that the Fed wouldn't have necessarily foreseen. And all of those things come into play to why inflation stayed sticky. Um, I don't think their transitory argument was ridiculous in any sense. And it's understandable how, though, because of these other factors that I've just mentioned, it has been persistent. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's point number one. I don't think they took their eye off the ball. I give them credit for hiking 75 basis points. In hindsight, should should they have been more aggressive? Sure. But they didn't have that perfect information. And the other thing I would say is let, let's just live in a world. Let's assume that they were, uh, Jim, for just a minute. Mm-hmm. Let's assume they hiked in the fall of last year. OK, I think what would have happened if that would have occurred is we would have had our 20 percent correction then. And the story and the narrative would have been, uh, hey, Mr. Client. I'm sorry about Q4 of 2021. Uh, We were up pretty handsomely, and then we've had this correction at year end, and we've given back 23% in the fourth quarter. We were up 28, and now, you know, you're you're flat or up just a couple percent this year. And here we are in 2022, and we're kind of flat on the years. We're working through this transition. I don't think people would be worried, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you'd be up, you'd be up three, 5% last year. You'd be flat so far this year. And, you know, folks would feel like, well, gee, I wish that would have been good, but that was on the heels of three consecutive years of 26% annual compounded return for stocks mm-hmm. in 18, 18, 20 and, and, and 21. Well, we're up 28 now we're off 23 and, it's all happened in a short period of time, I think is what has people nervous. Mm -hmm. They don't like to see that kind of volatility. Those are my thoughts about the the Fed. I think it's very understandable Mm -hmm. why we're, 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 uh, where we are at. And I think that these risks that are driving inflation and keeping it persistent or have, I think there are signs that that's calming. Mm-hmm. And that's not being advertised out there in the marketplace. I have plenty of examples of that. Well, in fact, there there was some data this morning from University of Michigan and their consumer price index that shows that, yes, inflationary expectations are beginning to abate a little bit. But let's move on right. to housing and yeah. the, the housing boom that we have here across the United States. And, of course, the housing industry is an industry which is very sensitive to interest rate rises. And, of course, you and I both remember when mortgage rates were in the 9s, 10s, 11% range, even higher. And, of course, we've gotten used over the last couple of years to mortgage rates in the 3% range to 4% range. Now we're looking at 6%, and that seems to be slowing down the demand for, for housing, both for construction of housing as well as for purchase of existing homes. Where do you think we stand in the housing market and what is the impact? What impact do you see from increasing interest rates? And where do you think mortgage rates are going to plateau out? Well, I think with, with regard to rates, that is the key thing that we're following. I don't even, I, 
I, I really don't think it matters if we go into recession or not, because if I, th- I think if we go into a recession, it will be a mild one. And most of the damage has already been done in advance, like we've seen in history. So you hit the nail on the head. I think the key thing is how high will rates go? And without speaking specifically to housing, we do think that um, they are close to a peak level, I think, in, in the 4% or below area. I don't think we're going to see 5 or 6%. Uh, interest rates on the mm-hmm. 10-year treasury and that mm-hmm. we're in a 1970s hyperinflation type of environment. As, as long as rates top out at those levels, I, I think the economy is just fine. And I think we can still have uh, kind of a, a nice soft landing uh, separate from uh, the stock market. You have to realize that back in 2000, back in 2007 and eight, when the market went into deep recession where you really have to worry about an extended bear market, an extended week period for the economy. You had Fed funds rate at 6%. Mm-hmm. We're at 1.75%. We're not even to neutral. Mm-hmm. This is not restrictive policy. Interest rates on the 10-year are at 3.2%. That's historically low. We were at 3.2% in 2018. Mm-hmm. And people were acting like we're in 2007 and eight with regard to their attitude towards rates. So when you have the data that came out like it did today with regard to consumer sentiment, when you see retail sales slowing, when you see the housing market slowing from really being on fire, mm-hmm. that may be interpreted as bad news but it's really what we need to see to get demand calmed and more in line with supply and to get this thing going for a nice rally. Mm-hmm. And we are kind of in a bad news is good news kind of period <laughs> mm-hmm. where a slowing in these different areas that you mentioned are required to make sure that the Fed is not behind the curve and we don't move into a typical boom bus cyclical cycle where they've got to jack rates up to 6% to slow things. And we just mm-hmm. don't think we're there. We think the economy is reacting and is slowing appropriately. And we can have a soft landing or now, a very mild recession. Now, we can't have a conversation about the economy without talking about gasoline prices. I'm sitting here in San Francisco. I'm paying $6.59 a gallon for regular unleaded. I wouldn't wouldn't even consider going to super unleaded. What can the administration do? Can the administration do anything to to bring those prices down? I know there's been talk of maybe giving a holiday for the federal tax gas the federal gasoline tax here in California while we have a huge budget surplus, the governor still hasn't been able to negotiate with with his uh, compatriots in the legislature to to give back some of that money, either in a gas holiday or a tax rebate here in California. But let's just come on to that gasoline price increase, because he's on his way to Saudi Arabia, and of course Israel, but Saudi Arabia, where he'll be meeting with some of the other countries of the Middle East who are big oil producers. Do you think that they might be able to turn the tap on to to really increase production so that we'll get some relief at the uh, gas pump? 
I wouldn't necessarily, and, and I don't want to overspeak. We talk to uh, energy analysts and we talk to political analysts as well. And you kind of got a blend of things going on here when you ask that question. Uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia has deteriorated significantly over the last, you know, let's call it half a dozen years and really more recently in the last several. So I wouldn't expect any great announcement coming out of a meeting between Biden administration and, and Saudi Arabia. In terms of what an administration could do, one, of course, you know, the obvious is, you know, calm your regulatory uh, you know, environment just a little bit and uh, allow for fracking and, and, and that kind of activity. Don't limit it as we make this transition towards green energy. Don't be too aggressive in the early years where we're still dependent upon fossil fuels and don't overreach and be thoughtful in your transition to green as you do it. So there's all, all different areas to criticize on that front. I'm not an expert enough to tell you that. I think, though, the point you bring up is significant, and I think there are a couple of thoughts that I have in the way to talk about and think about uh, the gas tax, if you will, the, the cost to the consumer and our economy as gas prices have spiked. So Strategus, which is an independent research firm that we subscribe to, and they're very good, they talk about um, the there's a ratio. If you add gas prices to the inflation rate, mm-hmm. whenever that uh, sum has exceeded a level of 10. So if gas prices are at five and inflation is at eight, eight plus five is 13. That's above 10. Whenever it's gone above 10, you've seen within some lagged effect a recession. Mm-hmm. So clearly gas taxes and or, or gas prices and energy impact uh, our economy. And I, I'm built, I'm renovating a house and I had to pick out tile the other day and I went to the tile company and, you know, I just asked them, how's your business? And they said, boy, it's really, it's come off in the last month or so. Mm-hmm. And I said, why, why, why do you think that is? And they said, well, it's funny. You can almost correlate it directly. When, as soon as gas prices jacked up, um, our business, you know, uh, slowed. You know, with regard to their their customer base, that's that's the way it happened, and it is a, a tax on middle class and lower income much more than the the higher demos. Uh, but this is the way I think about it. Number one, if gas prices and they do look to be peaking, mm-hmm. we've got this war going on. Oil would drop. I think most everyone would tell you twenty five to thirty five dollars if there was any end or progress in this Ukraine situation. So you could have a swift decline if that would happen. But let's say it doesn't happen and they just level out where they're where they're at. If if gas prices don't go up over the next year, that's zero percent contribution to inflation. It's no longer inflationary. And that's what's been driving inflation. Core inflation, X food and, and, and energy actually slowed over the last couple months. Mm-hmm. So I don't think very few people know that. And it, the headline will also slow if gas prices go no higher. And then people will say, well, that, okay, Jeff, maybe inflation will slow. But still, if they, if they peak at these higher levels, can consumers afford that? Because historically, when your ratio has gone, gone above 10, we've had a recession. And so my, my thinking about that is that energy costs are a much lower percentage of disposable income than they were historically when those ratios and, and, and those kinds of things were developed. But also we have to keep in mind that 
we have a trillion dollars in excess deposits still in bank accounts that we have to plow through that can be used to pay at the pump. Mm-hmm. And we have this thing called credit card debt that also can be utilized. And that's a cushion until people decide they're going to come back to work. Mm-hmm. People have not been coming back to work. And just think of the, uh, the consumption that can occur if they do that. So I don't think if gas prices flatten out at these levels, it any way would you know be a real threat that would drive us into a more than mild recession. Mm-hmm. And I think those are some of the things that uh, you know, have to happen. We have to go back to work. And I do think that the external shock is likely to be, you know, some resolution so that war is not causing these oil prices uh, not only not to increase more, but to just kind of level out. Well, Jeff, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are you telling your clients at this point as regards what they should be doing with their portfolios with of course, inflation, interest rates, stock market, certainly before, until this week, has been gyrating quite a bit. What are you telling your clients at this point, Jeff? Sure. I've got a couple of bullet points. The first bullet point is hold your ground. Don't sell stocks that when the market's down 20 to 23% off of the peak, that's the average decline in a mild recession. So most of the pains been felt were close to the bottom, uh, very close to the bottom, and there's a significant upside to the market over the next 12 to 15 months. It's premature to buy if you have excess cash. Wouldn't necessarily be adding to your equity exposure in here quite yet because mm-hmm. there is several percentage of additional downside points to the market, and we're not getting that enthusiasm on the up days quite to the level that we'd like to see even in a week like this week. So we need to see a little more broader buying before we're going to put the all-in signal out to add to your equity exposure. Going into the year, we said we expected a, a severe, a, I should say, a serious correction after three years of 26% annual compound mm-hmm. returns in, in the prior years. Expect one and don't freak out. Mm-hmm. We also said blend growth and value stocks together. Don't go to the extreme and own just value stocks. That makes no sense to us. Growth stocks that um, are benefit from 5G, from the move towards green and electric vehicles, from artificial intelligence and data and cloud, that's not going away. And you need growth stocks and those companies to drive labor productivity in a period when the labor force is very tight. So labor productivity is very important to keep those wage pressures down and it's going to be companies that can do that um, can can provide workflow management and make companies more efficient with their workforce um, that that you need to own and we have also said active management over passive management you want to be leaning that way active managers that can select specific stocks and securities Mm -hmm should outperform in this environment. The average stock is down 31% while the index is down only 20 to 23. Mm. So we find plenty of attractively valued stocks. They've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and selection, stock selection, what you own. It's not a stock market. It's a market of, it's not a market of stocks. It's a, uh, or the other way around. Sorry. It's not a stock market. Uh, It's a market of stocks. stocks. So buy those individual stocks is another factor and it's not a bad time to be looking at bonds right in here 
when you do have the short-term bonds in the two, three, four, five-year range paying over 3%, that's a pretty attractive time to own bonds. And if you really are worried about a recession, they tend to do quite well. And the only environment in which they would not do well is if you truly believe that inflation is out of control and it's it's like a 1970s kind of period. Mm-hmm. We just don't think that's the case. I think those are those are pearls of wisdom that we have, so to speak, and, and what we've been suggesting to clients. And Jeff, what is your website in case any of our listeners would like to follow up? Just as you would think, www.marathonwealthadvisors.com. Well, Jeff, I'd like, you th- like to thank you very much for your insights and your wisdom today in these trying times. Thank you very much for being with us. Jim, it's been a pleasure. I really have enjoyed it. Thank you. My pleasure. And with 293 published episodes, the San Francisco Experience is celebrating our second anniversary. We're carried on 19 platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, with listeners in more than 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco. Mm-hmm.